G'day Noobers, Shrek here. Today it's a controversial subject. We're talking about the Netflix documentary Sea Spiracy. If you haven't seen it already, by all means go and do so. The documentary does have a lot of good points. Um, however, from a Spiro's perspective, I couldn't help but be a little bit negative in today's episode. This conversation was partially spurred on by the Noob Spiro community on Facebook. Ben Vettina opened conversation by saying, hey Noobers, has anyone else watched Sea Spiracy? I watched it tonight. Certainly some eye-opening stuff for me. Uh, reaffirms a lot of what made me want to start catching my own food in the first place. What did you think? And had a very uh, vibrant conversation in the Noosphere community about it. Justin Townsend said, I watched it and agree 100% with you. I harvest my own fishing game meat. I wish they would have hit on the importance of recreational fishing for food instead of choosing commercial seafood. And um, a lot of comments about vegan propaganda. Antonio Cardial said uh, a lot of info coming out to the general public about, you know, the agendas behind some of the stuff. He has concerns about the MSC and Blue Label Dolphin Safe uh, basically being a marketing strategy and uh, Spiracy hits on that well. He says, my biggest problem with the film are the cringy and over-the-top acting, the misinformation and conflicts of interest that they talk so much about but they themselves are involved with with their uh, vegan industry stakes in it basically. And um, lots of good good points here. And anyway, so today um, I'm joined by John from Cast and the Spear podcast and Brett Whitman from Spear Factor. And we have a, a good old time approaching you know, what could be perceived as a largely negative influence on the spearfishing world. And because uh, I'll, I'll let you draw your own conclusions. Have a good chat. We try not to get too negative. We try to talk about the good and bad things about the documentary, but have that conversation in a more free form away. But obviously all three of us are Spiros, and I'd encourage you to check out uh, the other guys' podcasts as well. So John at Casting the Spear and Brett Whitman at Spear Factor both have um, their own unique takes on on the world of spearfishing, and uh, yeah, I enjoyed chatting with them today. So before we get there, a couple of quick shout-outs. If you haven't already, go to Old Man Blue Dive on Instagram and write your name down to help them name their lobster catch bag. It's a fantastic bit of kit, and all he's looking for is a good name. Now, the, the top three entries will all receive prize packs. So Old Man Blue Dive on Instagram or go to oldmanblue.com.au and uh, take a look there at the competition as well. I also wanted to make mention of Nooba Stories section in the noobspero.com menu. Basically, any Nooba listener can leave me a voice message. You can write a review for the podcast. You can do a product review. You can tell me about a scary story, anything you like. Wanted to quickly just uh, play a voice message from uh, Jody. Check it out. Have a listen to Jody. She's full of froth and stoke. Loved it. Hey, Shrek. Jody's here. Just wanted to let you know, mate, I did a free dive course last weekend after hearing you bang on about it forever, and it was the best. I seriously learned so much good stuff. Um, I feel like my technique now is way better. I had the confidence to try some really nice deep dives, uh, having professionals there next to you. That was really cool. And, um, yeah, I went spearing yesterday, and all the skills that I've learned definitely translated to that. I had an awesome time and just felt like everything was smoother, like I just leveled up. I think it would be a really good thing to do like with your dive group. That would be super cool. Um, practicing rescues and stuff like that too was just awesome information. I feel way better kitted out just in case something ever happens out in the water. So, yeah, thanks for banging on about that. I definitely have those tools now in the tool bag. And, yeah, I feel like I'm a better Spiro for it. Anyway, see you, mate. 
So thanks, Jodes, for the uh, voice message. Always welcome. Last quick shout-out before we get into Spiro's on Seaspiracy. The Blue Water World Cup. So spearfishing championships held in Palapas, Ventana, Baja, California, Sur, in Mexico, uh, June 22 to June 26. Um, check it out. Super cool competition. Tons of legendary spearos. If you're ever in a part of the world where you have an opportunity to go and take part in a spearfishing competition, I'd encourage you to do so. The Blue Water World Cup. Um, ticks a lot of boxes in terms of uh, not only the prizes and brands to get behind it, but in terms of the fishing that's available and the community aspect of it as well. So Palapas Ventana, um, check it out, the Blue Water World Cup. All right, let's get into Spiros on Sea Spiracy. Today's Noob Spiro podcast is proudly brought to you in partnership with Adreno Spearfishing Supplies. For your next piece of spearfishing equipment, head to adreno.com.au. Flat rate shipping, Australia-wide, huge range of gear. Save $20 on every purchase over $200 when you use the code NoobSpiro. Better yet, drop into their Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne or Perth mega stores. Use the code NoobSpiro to save online or in-store. Check it out, adreno.com.au. Today's NoobSpiro podcast is brought to you by Neptonics.com. For US divers, Neptonics is the one-stop shop for all of your spearfishing essentials. They've got free shipping on every order over $99. Now you can use the Noob10 code to save 10% off anything and everything store-wide. 10% off store-wide, use the code Noob10 at Neptonics.com. Boom! I try to take a common sense approach to it. I'm not a scientist, nor do I pretend to be, but when I see statistics like 99% of scalp, uh, or does it scalp hammerheads, are gone, I kind of throw up the bullshit flag on that one. Like, <laughs> yeah, they you know what I mean? 86% of bull sharks are gone as well. Yeah. With that note, right. well, let's kick this thing off. So yeah. I'm joined by by Brett Whitman from Spear Factor Podcast. I've been following along on Brett's journey since he started his show and uh, and very much enjoying it and his evolution as a podcast host. I just think uh, he's growing from strength to strength. And uh, if you haven't already done so, tune into Spear Factor. But Brett, who else is joining us? Uh, first, thanks, Shrek. I appreciate, it. and uh, I can't thank you enough again for all the support. Like you've been a huge help and inspiration. To be honest with you, we have Mr. John Stentrum from Cast and Spear. He's got a podcast too, uh, and he's got one hell of a website where there's more information on it, I think than you could ask for on fishing and diving. I think that's what makes John a little unique because he kind of covers everything. Hey man, thanks for the introduction. Appreciate it. We also have the man, the myth, the legend, Shrek, the best spearfishing podcast host, book, author, you name it. This guy is a legend and thank you for the invite, man. Really do appreciate it. You've been a big inspiration and I love listening to your podcast and learning a whole bunch of things. Cheers, fellas. I like both of your work. Just, John, I just wanted to jet one of your videos recently, that tourniquet video you did with, uh, with the jujitsu fella. That was awesome. Really put, oh, great. Some, really put some wheels on. I did a podcast with Eric Anderson a little while ago and we talked a lot about tourniquet and I was like, wow, we really need a video showing how to do it. And your video is just nuts and bolts, 100% practical, like really well put together. I, I, I really enjoyed it. And I actually linked it up in the comments to, you know, some of them like my videos because it's like, really want people to see actually how to do it, not just like have the idea of, you know, using it. So Appreciate that. Yeah, my buddy Dan, he's just an amazing guy. He actually let me shadow him one night at the ER here in LA County. And I mean, I'm, I'm impressed that this guy can do that stuff on the daily. And once I had talked to him about 
like, Hey, we, we do a pretty dangerous activity. You know, it doesn't have to be dangerous, but if we just knew a little bit better, we'll probably be a little safer. And he's like, dude, minimum know how to do a tourniquet. <laughs> so I'm like trying to pull as much knowledge as I can out of that guy's brain and share with the community as possible. Cool. All right, fellas. So we're here. We're, we're going to chat about Seaspiracy. All three of us have had, um, I'd say, very colorful reactions to watching it. Uh, I've seen it twice now, or the second time I kind of skimmed it. But if you watch it with other Spiros too, it's like you just find yourself pausing it and then having these like big discussions about the, some of the facts and some of the ideas that are presented in the documentary. I had some good fit thoughts towards Seaspiracy. But I'll be honest with you, I completely disagreed with the conclusions of the documentary. I'll say that up front. And if I offend people today, um, I'm going to do that anyway. And I just that'll be like every other podcast I do where I normally offend someone. So, But Brett, what, what were your initial sort of thoughts? Uh, I, likewise. You know, originally it started out um, like most documentaries about fishing and addressed, you know, an issue, commercial fishing, which is an issue, 100% agree with them on that. Where they kind of lost me was it was pretty obvious that there were handpicking data. And the only reason why I say that is because, like I had mentioned before, about 99% of scalloped hammerheads were, you know, gone and 86%, whatever it was, the bull sharks. And I, I mean, I don't know how you get it. Number one, I don't know how you would get an accurate measurement of that, especially being that we've only been doing these studies for, you know, we don't have a baseline or a control group, if you will. Yeah. And that's kind of the, that's kind of the common sense approach I say to it. But the thing is, it's like a teenager when they lie to you. It's like, it's not so much what you did. It's like, you lie to me and now I don't know if I can trust you. So as soon as I sense something like that, I'm like, oh, it's out the window, which is unfortunate because I think they really have good intentions and they're trying to do the right thing. Yeah. I, another thing too, when I think the gentleman, I don't remember his name, the guy doing it, he was saying he was 22 when he started it, right? Mm. And, and this is kind of goes to being older or whatever, grumpier, I don't know whatever you want to call it, but <laughs> I remember how narrow-minded I was at 22, Yep. And you could take everything with face value. And the reason why was because it was the first time you were getting a glimpse at the real world. So whoever you were getting the data from was shaping your whole perception because you don't have anything to compare it to. Yeah, I think, I think that I've, I relate to that. I think, you know, we're coming, you know, when you sort of come into adulthood, it's like a lot of the, the you know, the, the rosy tinted glasses come off and you see a lot of the things about human nature and the world we live in and, there's this reaction and you see it like with a, a lot of young people like, for sure, I, I was one of them. And 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 there's this this dawning of reality. Like it's not all, you know, Disneyland. We're not living in Disneyland. It's like there's a reality to life. Things die so that you can live, you know. And uh, and yeah, I, I agree with you. I like that too. Ali is the 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 creator's name. He's from uh, from Kent. So, but yeah, um, John, what what about you, man? This one's a good one. Um, I'll try to play devil's advocate um, as best as possible. But like my initial reactions of it was that it's a piece of propaganda. You know, it, all, it had a very simplified message in a, in a way that they outlooked on the world. Um, that you know, I I kind of come from that background where it's like before I even went spearfishing or hunting. You know, I kind of had a way of looking at the world. But then as soon as you kind of get into the community, you understand conservation and things like that. It's like oh. 
wow, you know, it, it's a more complex system out there than, you know, being on, being a binary, it's either good or bad. I think they're in the war of ideas and influence. So for them, I think there was a blog post or a Facebook message by the head of Seaspiracy who he just outlined exactly. It's like, this is a piece of propaganda. That's why we made it. Like our, we have a view of the world that we're trying to influence a large number of people who don't really necessarily need to have absolute truth. They just need to be kind of shown a story, which this was an excellent story, you know, for how they kind of framed it up to get people to feel a certain way. And then, you know, no more fishing or we don't want you to, you know, humans aren't the best uh, thing on this planet. We should like back off. Um, so I don't know. It was, it was kind of just like, there's a pretty big agenda there that I kind of was like, do we want to fight this with facts or do we want to look at it? What it is. It's a story to influence people to do something at scale in a certain direction. You know, that's, does that even make sense? Sorry. I look at, I looked at it as a different. No, it does. But I think to try and address a, uh, you know, like a 90-minute-plus documentary in a, in, a, in a 60-second cute little introduction is a difficult task. And, our, you know, our reactions to it are complex. And uh, I kind of agree with you, like, do you want to confront the ideology behind uh, the creator, which is kind of what Brett sort of said, like he was 22. You know, his worldview was shaped by, you know, this life stage that he was in as well as, like, probably current, you know, uh, beliefs about the world and 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 political parties and all the rest of it, you know, and it seems like he he very much had a green agenda, like a, a vegan agenda, and and I think the it was it was designed deliberately to get severe reaction from people. Um, I can't see anyone that eats a, a a quantity of fish not having a serious opinion about it, and people should be intentional and understand what they're eating and hunting and catching and stuff anyway. So. If it does nothing else but that, then maybe it's good. It has had some sort of positive impact, right? Well, I think, yeah, kind of along those lines too. I think the message and what they're trying to do is good. They mean well, right? So it's like, but we all have different ways. And this happens with so many issues across all political parties or whatever it is. Everybody means well but they all have a different means to get to that point, right? And then they all fight about that point, but without realizing that I really think that, you know, the documentary was based on the motivation was exactly what John said. It's a piece of propaganda. And I love the fact that he owned it, right? Like it is a piece of propaganda. Okay, cool. But I think there's enough good stuff, real facts that you don't even have to, you know, it is nothing in this world to me is black and white. There's a lot of gray area, but if you can pinpoint things and know what you can tackle rather than try to go for this whole thing, if you can tackle, win one battle at a time and win the war rather than make blanket statements, you do lose people. But, you know, to their point is that you're going to get people. You're going to get especially younger kids, younger guys, girls, whoever, and they're going to be aware of it. And you might get a few of those because they'll take it for face value. It's the same thing for me. It's kind of personal because the documentary Blackfish, like I, I know Rick O'Berry from what he did at our program where he cut the nets and whatever. <laughs> and it's like the other side to it is some of these activists, it is about money yeah. because if they weren't doing that, like they have to have, you know, conservation, it is a business. Oh, you do make money. Yeah. I mean, look at when I went to the zoo and I take my kids to the San Diego zoo and you look at every animal on there is on a threatened species thing or whatever it is. And it could be a pigeon and it's like threatened. And it's funny because it's like, uh, you know, that if it's threatened, then there's going to be conservation, which means there's going to be money behind it. 
And that does create a lot of jobs. And I do, again, think that the goal behind it is, you know, for the most part, I think for a lot of people, even, you know, when I was training animals for the Navy, it's like, we all care about these animals and that's why we're here. There are, however, the big driving force is money, because if we get money, then we can help them even further. So they might bend the rules a little bit. They might sell a different message just to get, you know, more people talking and more funds generated to support it. I do think in the documentary, which I didn't like, was it seemed like they were like dog eat dog. They started turning on, you know, people that were trying to do good, like with a gentleman with the earth program when he was my like, problem, my problem's bigger than your problem. Like, right. why, why aren't you solving my problem? My problem's more important than your problem. Yeah. And, and he wanted a guarantee. And that's, it goes back to that black and white thing. You can't guarantee anything, you know, people do get paid off. And he, and I appreciate the fact that that, that gentleman was being a hundred percent honest and saying, I can't guarantee everything, you know, but I, I grew I mean, I'm here in Point Loma, which is a huge Portuguese fishing community. And my neighbors are all Portuguese fishermen and they tell stories. And I know from talking to them, like, they're not trying to catch dolphins. That's a pain in the ass. They don't want to deal with that, you know? And unfortunately that does happen sometimes. There's so, a, you know. There's a lot of ivory tower thinking too. I mean, what did you, what was your take on it, on, on John, on, on particularly on, on, I don't know, this is this high-mindedness, like the, sim, the, sim, the simple idea that don't eat seafood, don't eat fish was the conclusion of the entire documentary. How did you feel about that? Well, I think the message was simple, right? I think the documentary was really good at being polarizing because they made that documentary for a certain set of people, not really critical thinking people. So I think that is a brilliance in marketing for sure. It's like that gave you like something that the masses could understand. Don't do this. It's bad. Right. So I just think that's horrible because that message wasn't coming from the communities that actually really need to eat fish to survive. And that's not a Western culture. You know, that's like everybody else outside of first world countries, you know, they're the ones in small villages around the world who need to eat fish. They weren't even like, nobody talked in that documentary from those communities. It's like, yeah, it's exactly the ivory tower. You know, everybody's bad, but us, and we're so enlightened that therefore, you know, you do it this way. Otherwise you're, you're all in this other group of bad people. And I think that's horrible. Like I want to hear some diversity of opinions, you know, from communities that are actually affected by the way that they have to eat because, you know, they don't have the infrastructure that we've spent a hundred years building over here. You know, that, that was my thing is there wasn't enough opinions from cultures that weren't just like first world countries. Did you guys get that same vibe or? Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. It was like, yeah, from up here in our ivory tower where we live in an apartment and I'm shooting on $50,000 camera, I'm going to criticize people that live in third world countries that live in subsistence fishing villages that, you know, basically what they do is wrong and also stop putting plastics in the ocean and stop killing whales and dolphins too. And uh, you guys are all evil and Sea Shepherd's awesome. <laughs> yeah. That's um, a, it annoys me a little bit because it's like my grandpa is from a small little fishing village in the Philippines. Like that's how they made their money. He was, you know, at 10 years old throwing nets to catch fish to then sell for pennies back in the day. You know, it's like, I understand that, you know, it's not like I lived it and did it myself, but you know, that runs deep in my family. So it's like, I have that a little bit of insight that, you know, those people aren't going to be the ones speaking up, you know, they're the ones who are going to get shafted. You know, if we kind of like say, Oh yeah, let's, close off all your coasts so you can't go get fish or put regulations on you. And then it's like, now what? They have to go buy from companies to sell them the fish that they could have gotten themselves. You know what I mean? It's like, 
I, I felt I like know. I felt like a more responsible message would have been to just tell people to buy local. There's this ivory tower thinking like a lot of the stats and and the and the information they're sharing come from third world countries, and then we're applying it to the entire world's fishing efforts um, based on very small examples of of you know poor management and things like that. But in most developing world countries, we've got very complicated and not hundred percent like awesome fisheries management processes, but like we've seen recoveries in in some um, in some fishing populations. Like in in Australia, you've got the southern bluefin tuna. Like that thing is that fishery is booming now because of really good management practices. And this idea of but you know our countries and our governments like they like shutting down and creating marine parks and banning commercial fishing or severely restricting it, and then importing fish from third world countries. It's like, so we're not even allowing a market effect to, to work like supply and demand because if you, if you reduce supply but the demand stays the same, the price goes up. So if we shopped local for seafood, the scarcity would, would mean higher prices. Commercial fishing people would get paid more money. We wouldn't be importing fish to our countries from these third world countries where they have very little management in place and they are they're more inclined towards doing, um, you know, practices that, that that aren't going to be sustainable in the long term. I'm not, I'm not here to just shit and piss all over third world countries either. I, I'm aware that, you know, they have economic pressures and, and all the rest of it, but um, encouraging them to adopt good management practices is what we should be doing, like investing in their fisheries. If we're going to buy fish from third world countries, we should be teaching them about how to do it. And I also didn't like how the documentary just sort of spat all over and, and just diminished the efforts of some of the bodies that are trying to help provide accountability to some of the commercial fishing operations. I, I understand that they're fraught with failures. Um, and, you know, they talked about some of the observers getting thrown overboard and and but but there were silly questions like sorry I'm going through several topics here at once but one of the questions that really observed uh, like annoyed me was so can you guarantee that not one dolphin was harmed on a fishing boat and it's like like the reality of 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 of, of commercially doing anything where you gather crops or animals whatever it is for for people for for mass production means that there's going to be um, other animals that are harmed in it and that's just common sense, I, I would have thought. But anyway. Yeah, I'll talk to that a little bit. I mean, you're talking about even on land, right? When they're harvesting crops, so many small animals, small mammals, whatever it is, get killed when they're harvesting those crops on those big combines. Well, yeah, so there's always going to be a buy. So it's a catch-22. So the journalism, from a journalistic side, that was like poor at best. Like when he would go, you know, and talk to these people, that's one of the notes I made was how antagonistic he was mm. as far as like, why are you killing everything? And you expect the guy to respond to you with the, you know what I mean? Like, and so then you can paint him with a brush. Say, look how evil he is. Cause he's responded to me like an a-hole, you know, used to speak to me. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't talk to you either. If you came to me like that, cause it didn't seem like you had a real open mind about it. Right. You're supposed to have an open mind about everything and, and come to your own conclusion based on facts, not, why are you killing dolphins? Wait, nobody's, hold on, you know. And one thing about the shark thing that was interesting when they talked about shark finning and uh, I think the gentleman uh, was talking, who got attacked by the bull shark in Sydney Harbor, and he was talking about shark fin soup and how there was no nutritional value in it and the taste wasn't good. Well, a long, long time ago when I was in elementary school, I had a, a tutor and we, part of the thing was we made shark fin soup. She happened to be um, Chinese. And 
I remember tasting it and thinking, oh, it tasted pretty good. And then because he said that there was no nutritional value on it, I, you know, I, I just Googled it and it was like, yeah, eight grams of protein. Like you say like, and there's nothing wrong if there is nutritional value with it, but why do you say that? That's not necessarily true. And then what happens is now you've lost me because you, you know, when there's a lot of facts to go off, it just, it, I, I don't like the first world mentality like you're talking about. We talk about first world problems and traveling a lot through work and through the world and seeing people like John was talking about, like his grandfather, that really rely on fish for food. And they don't have a formal education or educated in general as far as how to manage their own reef. And if you help them with that, that would probably be huge to their community. And they could, you know, not have to keep going out, going out, going out. But there's just a lot of things that were said that rubbed me the wrong way. Just, you know, I mean, again, the message is good. I understand what they're trying to do. Awesome. But then on the flip side, I always have a problem with the solution, right? Which is like the solution is don't eat anything in the ocean. Okay, so then we turn all of our efforts to land. And then, oh, now there's a vegan film about eating animals. So now we're not eating animals. So now we're clearing hundreds of thousands of acres so that we can grow corn or grow this or grow that. So like, where does it stop? You know what I mean? I think the solution is just for us to die. Um, when it comes <laughs> down to it. Just, you know, like... It's Population like, control. Yeah, yeah. They are the virus. But but not yeah. them. Not them. They, they, they should, because oh. they're, you know, they've reached a new moral, you know, like a higher plane of being. But the rest of us that eat fish and meat and whatever else, we should all die because um, we're just ignorant. And the world would be way better if it was just vegans. And um, well, I, I think the thing is, they paint us all with the same brush, right? Like they act like we're murderers of fish. And I know, and I can speak for my other friend too. You know, every time I pull the trigger on a fish, it means something to me. I know, you know, you see a fish, it looks at you, whatever, and you kill it. Um, and you, you try to kill it quickly so it doesn't suffer. But the connection, again, with that food is I appreciate it far more than I did if I just bought it at a store. But the other thing is I am doing my part by going out and getting my own food. I shoot one fish and I come home and we might eat that, you know, that 30-pound grouper I got. Well, I'm still eating that thing. And so, you know, but, but to say, like, we're, we don't care about animals. I love animals. Like, <laughs> my house is like a zoo. You know, so it, it, I hate the getting painted with all of a sudden we're all looped in with commercial fishing, yeah, um, and, and abusive commercial fishing. But one thing probably a lot of spearfishing people don't realize is like I've seen spearos with sea shepherd shirts on, and I don't have a massive problem with sea shepherd. Like some of the stuff they do, fantastic, and a lot of these green activist groups, some of the stuff they're doing has some merit, but they are fundamentally against. All forms of fishing, all forms, recreational fishing, spearfishing, everything. They specifically list spearfishing as something that they're against. So just like be aware of that and be aware that they 100% disagree with our lifestyle of, of, of sustainably harvesting fish, even on our own terms. And even taking one, they, they, they still don't like the idea of it. And it's a, it's a classic example of, yeah, ivory tower thinking. The other thing I was going to say, like, um, and I wrote it down, it was uh, Brandolini's Law. It's also known as the bullshit asymmetry principle, which, which sort of comes about like if someone creates a, a, a false, uh, f delivers a false fact 
the order of difficulty needed to refute that is an order of difficulty greater, you know? Like if, if someone says, you know, like a classic one is like, oh, 15% of this is that, you know, like, and it's like, well, where do you get your numbers from? Oh, I read it somewhere, you know? It's like, oh, cool. All right. So I'll just, I'll just find your stat from wherever it is and then I'll find, you know, superior stats. And I think like this this documentary, they they muddy the waters. They They confuse people and they like to give you so much information that you can't deal with it on a step-by-step basis, like you said, and then they lump in other arguments and it seems like, well, they've got one legitimate stat, so then they throw in more, three more with it, even though th- those stats aren't peer-reviewed research or anything like that. And um, I found this whole documentary was sort of fraught with that. Like there was, there was, they threw a lot of numbers and I, I haven't even had time to go through even, you know, a quarter of them. Um, have you guys done much research into it? A book that everybody should read is How to Lie with Statistics. It's a very short read, but it gives a lot of good examples of how you can just cherry pick whatever you need to do to fit a narrative. I mean, this is very classical in business and marketing. They do it all the time. So uh, I agree with you. Like a lot of, I think I remember reading an article where they kind of went through some of the studies that they picked from here where they're like, oh, uh, 100% of the fish are going to be gone by 2048. And it's like, that was like one study that was refuted. Like it didn't have any citations. I think it was almost not even like a, a legit study, but it's easy to kind of, once you put it out there, like you said, now it gets propagated. And at the scale that we have now for communication, thanks to Netflix and YouTube and all these different platforms, you're, it's, it's, a, it's just a war. Everybody's just like lumping over agendas, you know, and if we don't, if you don't have a good enough argument that's polarizing for your own case, like you're going to get a herd mentality of like somebody's influence propaganda. And then, you know, if you're not vocal enough to fight back, you're screwed. Does that, does that kind of make sense? It's like, that's my problem with like the fishing community is we have a lot of different anglers and like there's commercial guys, recreational guys, there's Spiros, there's this and that. And we all kind of think, you know, our own way is the better way. So then we're going to be fragmented. Whereas like a vegan agenda or whatever can say, you know, fishing is bad. And it's like, they're going to win to a certain group of people versus us where we're like, oh, well, you know, recreational is the only good way or spearfishing is the only good way or like commercial guys are bad. But, you know, if we don't start kind of figuring out a way to band together and have a, a unified message, fishing is just not going to be a thing, in my opinion. And like, because the, they're already trying to do it with the 30-30 initiative, like 30% of coastlines and, and waterways need to be shut down from like all kind of fishing. And then they're trying to do 50-50 by 2050. So it's like all these things are going to happen. Like if we're not like kind of unified and figuring out how to influence for our own community, you know, our, our kids aren't going to be fishing. I can guarantee you that. Yeah, it's good. And it's classic. It's uh, Sun Tzu, isn't it? Divide and conquer. It's um, split us all up into our various sort of partisan groups and then uh, make us fight each other. And, um, and the documentary does that. It tries to get us to all jump on a bandwagon against commercial fishing. And um, there's some practices in commercial fishing that are legitimately way, way, way past their use-by date. And, you know, our ability now to use technology has given us some advantages over nature that we need to be 100% cognizant of when we plan management strategies. And, um, and yeah, so there's some, there's some, because there's validity to some of their arguments, you know, we can all just start talking smack about commercial fishing, but there's success stories too. And I didn't. I dislike the fact that the documentary just sort of was just completely negative about all of the management. You know, like one example was in Japan where they were talking about the Pacific bluefin tuna, which is I think they, I, I can't remember the numbers, but they were saying they're down to I think three percent of their virgin biomass. Um, 
and then they but then they applied that same stat to all tuna everywhere. And it's like, well, okay. There's there's Pacific bluefin tuna in this area. There's Pacific bluefin tuna in this area. Um, those fisheries and their migration patterns and their their spawning cycles are all different, and they're all managed different by different user groups in different countries and stuff like that. So you know that that it's like they're using a form of you know cognitive bias, which relies on us hearing the stat from Pacific bluefin tuna and then hearing it loosely applied to all species. I just thought it was it was it was a very it was quite a primitive effort, I thought, to manipulate people. But if you were, if you're not aware of all of the different species of tuna and the different management practices in different parts of the world, then you're going to be influenced by that. So, and that's what makes it difficult because, like you said, there's a lot to learn. Just in general, there's a lot of information, and every layer of information that you need to learn yourself is a friction point. Mm. So that's why I think you know stories that are very simple, general, and that are emotional generally work best for influence. And it's like, you can't fight that with, oh, look at uh, such and such Latin name of the specific species that is really prevalent here, but not over here. And then somebody's just like, so it's a tuna. It's like, oh, and the tunas are going to die. Okay, great. I get it. So we should probably just not fish. It's like every layer of complexity is mental energy. And that's, I feel like you can't win that argument. You know, like it's not about facts per se. It's about influence. So I don't know. I'm just saying we we kind of maybe it's a. I always thought you know you want to keep fishing. It's a marketing problem. Like we need to get some really good marketers up in our community and try and figure out messages that make the the people who are going to be doing policies like lobbyists or the just the general public see anglers and fishermen and spear fishermen as a a necessity and a benefit to the world than a hindrance. And if we can't figure that, then you know we're kind of screwed. Are you in the market for a new spear gun? Killshot Spear Guns has got blue water wahoo tuna guns, open track spear guns, enclosed track spear guns, rear handle enclosed tracks. Check them out at killshotspearguns.com. Even better, I've got some good news for you. You can save $30 on any Killshot Spear Gun at killshotspearguns.com. Use the code NOOB. If you're in store, just say, crikey, mate. Or say Shrek from the Noob Spiro sent you, and you'll save $30. Ed Martin at killshotspearguns.com. Check him out. Hey Shrek, Jeremy here, man. I'm back. Just wanted to say the podcast is growing from strength to strength, my friend. Hoorah, man. I just wanted to say thank you for your uh, continual support from the Noob Spiro listeners, subscribing, reading, writing, and submitting kick-ass spearfishing adventures from all over the planet. Your list is kick-ass, and Shrek, my friend, so do you. All you guys, come check out the next edition of Spearing Magazine at spearingmagazine.com. Jeremy out. Let's talk about some of the different topics that they address in the Sea Spiracy, because I felt like there were some legitimate areas that, I mean, we should all be concerned about. Like, plastic was a huge issue that they sort of brought up, and it was kind of our gateway drug into um, the documentary. And they talked about how these plastics break down and become microplastics and they enter um, sort of our our ecosystem from every level of the food chain. And um, like I heard a lady on Joe Rogan podcast, like I think maybe a month ago, and she was talking about how, you know, our fertility as a broad spectrum society, like human fertility is dropping 1% every year on a, in a linear fashion. And it has been doing so for the last 30 something years. And uh, that may or may not be a good thing. 
Um, but but the fact is she was attributing it to these microplastics and they're having a huge impact on 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 the world uh, on on the on the planet as a whole. What did you guys uh, think with regards to the plastics topic? Well, for one thing, um, you know when he was talking to the lady about forty six percent of the the plastic island, you know, the patch out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean was fishing nets. And I thought that was kind of funny. That was kind of loaded. And it kind of begged the question to me was that, have you been there? Like, have any of you that are all making all this stuff, have you actually been to that? I mean, because it very well could not even, it, it very well could not even exist. It could be just another propaganda thing. And I'm not saying it does or it doesn't. I, I, I believe that it does. But what my point is, is that you're commenting on something that you've never even been to. Mm-mm. And you're saying that, oh, it's all, you know, it's all fishing nets. So therefore, fishing is bad. It seemed like a very specific number. I, I wonder where some of that research has came from. I can't imagine that right. like some government funded thing. It sounds like another fringe group with a with a vested interest in presenting a specific type of information to the people that provide their funding. Um, because looking where the funding comes from and how the, their funding models operate helps you to understand some of the messages that they're sharing. And, um, you know, like plastics, you think, oh, okay, it'd be a relatively simple issue. Like, let's have a chat about, you know, which countries and cultures are generating, you know, the largest volumes of plastic. Not that that disperses our own personal responsibility, but, you know, like actually having a good look at the problem. Do do you think that that 46% figure was just a figure that they threw out to provide that entry into starting to talk about the fishing? I don't know. Well, based on... The other statistics they threw out, I think if they actually threw out a number that they created, it would be like 99% or something, something much higher. Yeah. I, I really don't know. I, I'm, I'm, I have no idea where that number came from, but it sounds, I mean, it sounds like a fair number. Again, I have no idea, but it, it seems like, hey, how did, if there is a number, I always beg like this question, how did you measure that? Did you take a sample size of like say an acre of plastic that was out there, part of that patch, and you measured that and then applied that to the rest of it, like, and just times that, whatever, by, you know. So I don't know how they got that number. And I I don't know if I've actually uh, seen like data from it, right? And and again, I'm not a researcher, I'm not a scientist, but I can Google things. And, um, you know, if it is, I mean, plastic is a major problem, major problem. And I don't think anybody would dispute that. Now, however, is plastic all because of commercial fishing or mostly because of commercial fishing, as they suggested? It's like, dude, come on, really? Like 40%, 46% of plastic is all due to commercial fishing. So it goes back to commercial fishing. It's like, that's a stretch for me. I felt like during that section of the documentary, it, there's some really compelling storytelling that, that make it helps you relate to him, which is what it was designed to do. He 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 starts talking about how he was he cared about the oceans and and its inhabitants, and then he started signing all these e petitions and stuff. And then he started realizing that oh, plastics is a huge problem, so I'm going to go out and I'm going to start cleaning my local beaches and stuff. I thought that was pretty cool. Like if the, if he was for real, and that is actually what he did. I like people that connect action to you know the stimulus that they're receiving, you know, like if you see a problem, be part of the solution. I felt like that was probably the the best part of the documentary for me, where he was just became personally responsible for his own actions and, uh, and did it. And I think most people should do that because a lot of people just talk about shit and they never do stuff. 
And uh, if it's connected to direct personal action where you take a greater responsibility for your own actions and within your own sphere of influence, then I think that's a huge thing. Um, I don't know if it was legit or just another storytelling gimmick because after watching the whole documentary, you start to question whether he's honest about stuff or whether he's right. telling a great big story, you know. Because, I mean, you know, and, and documentaries are really just a, someone telling you a story. Elements of it are, are probably not true. But when you get to the end and you've been subjected to all of this bias and, and, and propaganda for so long, you start to question all of it, which, which is kind of what you sort of said before. Yeah, because I think, you know, people were suggesting that they play, they placed the plastic next to the animals that were dead on the beach and they put nets on the animals, um, which, you know what, it would not surprise me because having, you know, like I said, dealt with issues in the world <laughs> for, you know, in their mind, they're probably justifying what they're doing is the, it's the greater good. I totally understand that. I know a lot of people that have done do some bad shit for the greater good. And that's how they justify that. And again, I think the thing is that as far as there's always an underlying for me, a little bit of respect for, you know, the whole, everybody involved in making that film, Ali and everybody else, because like you said, they went out and did it right. That takes effort. And I think they're trying to do good. I just wish they didn't have to go as far as they did because they lost a lot of people and they might be more effective if they just were a little bit more honest or a little more gray area about solutions and things like that. Yeah. I, would, I mean, I think plastics are a big problem. Um, I think Brett was right when it comes to like, how did they measure the fishing, commercial fishing? I mean, if, the, if there are a lot of nets being wasted or just left out there after um, they've been used for a certain amount of time, that's a problem. Yeah, there's, there's certain solutions that can be done regulating commercial vessels to make sure that they're compliant. I think that, you know, I know they is a very visual thing when they were saying they were throwing off the inspectors off boats. And I'm sure that's happened multiple times. You know, it's, it's a money thing, right? Um, especially in different countries. Uh, yeah, I think plastics is a, is a big problem, but it's also like who produced a lot of plastics. And it's like a lot of the times it's first world countries and then they, sh they send these uh, products without thinking about the full end of life of what happens at the end of the life of the product. And then, you know, they're not, not held accountable per se, you know, but then they'll, they're willing to say like, Hey, look at all this problem in these other parts of the world, which you kind of had a, a stake in, you know, like plastics have been around for like 70 something years or whatever it is, but you know, they came from generally first world countries <laughs> and then been shipped all over the world to make a profit. So like, I don't want to paint them all as, like I understand that people have to make a living and they do a lot of good in terms of getting fish to the dinner plate to help feed people. But there are practices. And I think like you said, like technology could be used better to make sure that everything is well managed and, you know, certain practices like nets and long lining and dredging. I don't like dredging. I think dredging is bad. <laughs> really bad. But um, like, do you guys want to comment on that a little bit? Yeah. <laughs> what are your thoughts? No, I, <laughs> I, uh, I agree with you. You know, like there's something to be said when we're out there running around spending all this money trying to shoot a stupid bluefin tuna and you turn around and, um, you know, we're limit, our limit here in California is two a day, which it could be two to a summer. That's about all I get, you know, which is fine, but you turn around and then there is a, you know, a commercial, uh, boat with a plane and whatever and a speed and they're just scooped up the entire school over to the uh, to the holding nets in in Mexico and they unload all the fish and then they grow them there but the point is it's like 
you just scooped up a, like a mile's worth of tuna yeah. and then did that when here I am running around like an idiot trying to shoot one, you know, my buddies. And if we get one per boat, like we're styling, we're good, you know? And so I don't necessarily know, you know, the bluefin is very sensitive. The bluefin is a, is a sensitive fishery and depending on where you're at. And with the explosion of everybody really into sushi, especially here, I mean, I can attest to that. I wouldn't eat raw fish. I thought that was bizarre until my wife got me involved in sushi. I was like, that's pretty good. But, um, you know, that's the whole, I'll never order, you know, Toro unless I know where it comes from or because I don't want to contribute to that. And like John said, I totally agree. These people are human beings that are trying to do what they got to do for their family. I live in a neighborhood full of them, uh, commercial fishermen. And they're not bad people. We just have to be like, um, you know, the dolphin safe thing is kind of funny. When the dolphin safe thing happened here in the United States, you know what they did? They took all their vessels and they moved down to Samoa. Yeah. And so there, that didn't really fix anything, did it? <laughs> like it's just out of sight, out of mind. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I think there is some good ways of do things when they used to do with poles. But I think the big problem is the supply and the demand. There's supply, but if we decrease the supply, decrease the supply because we're educated on what's going on and what's, you know, then we can make a decision not having bluefin every time you go out or, or whatever it is. You can decrease that supply, which would then allow people to be able to do sustainable fishing practices without having to scoop up a mile of fish because everybody in San Diego wants sushi. Yeah. You know what I mean? So that's kind of where I'm at. Like it is a supply and demand thing. And I do support my local fishermen friends here that I know are going out, sitting out all night, fishing for white sea bass, trying to get it. And then they sell it to my friend's restaurant. So I, I, I totally get it. Influencing public opinion so that there's, you can influence d demand on particular species is a huge problem. And I talked to Valentine Thomas about it ages ago. It's about how do you skew public opinion so that they they desire or want to have more locally caught stuff um, and, and particularly sustainable fisheries, you know, like the all sharks are endangered argument and like, you know, they're all like Bruce from, you know, Finding Nemo. Uh, it's incredibly simplistic. And then, but all of a sudden, because of this influence, like the shark flin soup thing, we've been smashed with that vegan propaganda about sharks for uh, probably at least 10 years, and that has heavily influenced our demand of shark. Like shark is not caught like it was. But even like the, the sustainable species, and there are a number of them, like we're not talking tiger sharks and great white sharks and things like that. I'm talking about school sharks and the other sustainable type fisheries. They no longer catch the same amount of, of fish of those species because no one wants to buy it. Consumers aren't, don't want to eat it anymore. But it hasn't really reduced the active um, numbers of the one the species that actually are vulnerable, and this is happening in first world countries. That where the sharks are at, at risk is in countries where they don't manage their fisheries as tightly, and so it's, it's bizarre. It's like we've got this anthropomorphism shaping demand, and it's not having the desired effect. It's just making the the, the demand for sh sh sharks broadly go down. Um, I think it's weird. And, and and then we import fish from third world countries to make up the shortfall from these species that aren't managed on any level. It's just bizarre. Like, I mean, but some of the solutions put forward are like, okay, well, how do we govern fishing at an international level? Because a lot of these fisheries are um, they're not beholden to 
any country's laws because they're fishing in international waters or they turn their transponders off overnight and then they head into marine sanctuaries and do whatever the hell they want. And that stuff does go on, you know. And, um, yeah, I, I don't know. What, is, what, what are some of the solutions? Have you guys thought about that? Well, I know mahi, you know, mahi, dorado, mahi, mahi is like one of the most sustainable fish. And it's also really, really delicious. Mm. So it's like that's a targeted species where I think could be, you know, be the poster child for sustainability and people can feel good about eating it. And then that would release some of the pressure on other fish. But as far as like flying, like when you're getting fish from other countries, and I agree with you, it's a little weird because there's, having been to a lot of those other countries, there is no thought as far as sustainability or anything like that. It's like, hey, we got to get, we got to make money. There's a reef. Let's do it. Right. Like I know guys that go out at night. Um, I don't know them personally, but I know of people and I've seen them go out at night on scuba and just decimate a reef. And to me, that, you know, really pissed me off, quite honestly, because when you spend enough time on a reef and you dive it, like you get to know a lot of those local fish. It sounds, it sounds kind of funny, but um, yeah, you're very protective of it. And to see people do that, like nothing can sustain that. Like it's not even, and then they're going and selling it and the next night they're back out again. And it's like over and over again. And it's like, you're not even leaving the reef. You're not even like going from one area to the next, like maybe give that reef a break and go here. And the other side is like, are they killing enough of the fish to meet the demand or are they killing enough of the fish because they're getting paid for it and the fish, half of them just go and rot somewhere. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't have any statistics. I don't know how much that is going on, but I think there's could be a lot of propaganda done for the sustainable fish. And there could be a lot of propaganda done for eat local, like you're saying, because it does impact people in your neighborhood, people that are doing it right. And they don't have to get as many fish to support a smaller dynamic. Like in Point Loma, the commercial fishermen that go out and go to catch sea bass or go to they don't have to provide enough sea bass to ship it to Florida. They don't have to do all. They can just locally get here and hopefully, you know, I'm not a commercial fisherman and hopefully get enough here to where they're doing well. And, and you know what, if you got to subsidize them, subsidize them. We subsidize a lot of other things. Why not, you know, help out like, like how we help out farmers. Why not help out fishermen? And I know some of them are uh, heavily subsidized up in, the salmon fishery up north in Oregon and uh, Washington, they get paid to not fish, which is maybe, you know, is not necessarily a bad thing. There was criticism in the documentary leveled against um, subsidizing any form of fishing because they believe it's a, you know, you're paying for the long-term um, detrimental impact of these fishing people on our environment by sending them any money at all or helping them or incentivizing any action you're, you're contributing, basically. That was kind of one of the arguments. Did you pick up on that, John? Or yeah, that's a complicated situation on that one. I don't really have a good answer to that. Um, I do understand that it, it's kind of a tragedy of the commons. Um, I think we kind of experience a form of uh, what happens when the water runs out. For example, in California, with like the almond farmers, like do you band together and kind of look at the problem as a community and figure out a best way to manage it so that everybody wins? Or do you just say, I have access to this well, I'm going to take the last gallon because I need to make the money for myself. I feel like fishing is kind of a, a little bit similar where it's kind of a finite resource that, you know, everybody has to pull from, but there, it's, everything is sectioned off and fragmented to where it's like, if I don't go myself and grab the fish, 
and sell it that my family can't eat. But in reality, it's like there has to be this like hybridization of, you know, that's why we have a government is to figure out ways in which to throw money in certain ways that the end result benefits the entire group. I don't know if that makes sense, but I'm just like, it's a, it's a very complicated problem. And that's why I think the simplicity of the messages, it's easier for people to understand where it's just like, don't fish or fishing is bad. So then you don't have to, you don't even have to look at all the different use cases or the different, uh, you know, levers, you change this lever, it affects this group of people, they get mad and all the stuff. It's just easier to say ban it or something or don't do it. It's bad. Um, so I, I don't have a, a good answer on that one, to be honest. If your buddy had a blackout on your next beer fishing trip, think, what would the outcome of that be? Do you know how to revive someone from a blackout? Would you even be in a position to do something about it? Or would you be diving, chasing after a fish as your buddy sinks down to the bottom of the ocean? Do you know where most blackouts happen? Do you know what you can do to minimize your risk of having a blackout? My name is Ted Hardy, and I'm the founder of freedivingsafety.com. In my free online course, you will learn the truth about shallow water blackout, the myth of I don't push myself, I know my limits, I'm in tune with my body, how to minimize your risk of having a blackout, and most importantly, how to save your buddy's life if they have one. Visit freedivingsafety.com to sign up for your free course today. Dive safe out there. It's, it's not even that hard. I think it was a good answer. I think, yeah, we're back to talking about ivory tower people though. Like there's subsistence communities that live primarily on fish. Like fish makes up a huge part of my diet. You know, like the spearfishing lifestyle is all about catching your own food, like from ocean to, to bringing it home and preparing something special. And um, I guess the, you know, the the consistent thread, the narrative throughout the, the documentary runs counter to that. Um not not an not all of the time because they but all of the issues they point to were linked up to the narrative. Some of the issues I agree with and I would I would love to see some solutions put forward towards them, but I can't connect, you know, their conclusions to some of these issues. I, I, I yeah. Um one of the other things they talked about and you talked about it just before was longliners. And there was a journalist who said longliners put out enough line to go around the world 500 times every day. I was like, I don't even understand how that could be statistically possible. Um, please enlighten me if you guys have a different idea about this. I, I picked up on that exact same thing. And uh, I was trying to do some math and I got, I'm like, I just, I stopped because I was like, that doesn't make any sense. Are you talking like it? I don't even, yeah, that just doesn't make any sense. I would love to see the statistics and the work cited and go look it up myself. But again, they threw this number out and I was waiting for them to say like every year, you know, and they said every day. And I just immediately was like, all right, hold on, hold on, hold on. Um, it didn't, you know, if it's true, I may, maybe there is, it depends how they cherry pick the data, right? It depends how they got the data. Are they talking about, they took a collection from 1950 or from the, you know, the last, who knows? I, I don't know. And, and they were talking about this, they did the same kind of thing with the commercial fishing fleet. How many commercial boats? There's like 4,000. And um, ah, no, there's 450 four, million fishing. Yeah, boats. that's the one. Yeah, that's the one. And, and my, my question about, yeah, sorry, 4 million. And uh, my thing with that was like, what, what are you including as, you know, commercial fishing boat? Because you definitely aren't going off licenses. Well, you can uh, fish out of a kayak, so maybe they counted kayaks and that. So that's what I'm saying. Like they probably look at every boat. You know, every country has so many pang like pangas or whatever, 
And again, how did you get that data? Dude, there's no way you got that data accurately. That's the only thing. Like, um, I don't know how you can do that accurately. I've been to a lot of, like, my work takes me to a lot of countries along the, um, the coast. And you see all these commercial, you know, I don't even want to say commercial. They're just fishermen, you know, very poor fishermen. And if you include, like, you'd have to go on Google Earth and look at and frame the entire coastline of the world and start counting. And you're telling me you got to 4 million and something. That guy must have a lot of free time. I don't know. Do you guys know any rich fishing people? Yeah. Um, well, I know guys back in the uh, 80s, a lot of the Portuguese here, that owned the boats. Yep. When they owned the boats and they went out for the, for the tuna fishery in the 80s, they did really well for themselves. Depends on what you define as rich, though, too, also. You know what I mean? Um, well, but I know they work their ass off. <laughs> yeah, well, working your ass off for 30 or 40 years to steadily buy, you know, I don't know. Like, everyone does that. Yeah, I don't know. It's... it's our, mo- our measurements for wealth are fairly crude, but if you work your ass off for 30 years, you'd expect to own your own fishing boat and maybe another one. I don't know if that's unreasonable, though, because according to the conclusions of this documentary, you've, you've made it at the expense of the oceans, and that, that was both, that, that'd, be, that'd be the way they would define it, wouldn't it? So, so, let me, so here's, here's where I'm at. So this is a personal thing. So I used to work with one of the guys that's the first mate on the Sea Shepherd. I'm not going to mention any names on one of the Sea Shepherd's boats, right? Now, and I don't, I'll just be honest, like he was a trust fund kid and he got fired because he was on his dad's yacht and there was a bunch of cocaine. Somebody fell off and died and you go over to his house and it's like, oh, it's time to go because all these dudes are rich and they're doing a mountain of cocaine right here. And I can't afford an attorney. I need to get the fuck out of here. Like, um, and so he got fired and what he ended up doing was moving to Hawaii, bought a huge 50 foot catamaran and started doing whale, you know, whale tours. Um, and, you know, hey, to each his own. No problem with any of that. I don't, you know, everybody's got their own path. It's all good. But next thing I know, you see him on Whale Wars. And he's talking, again, ivory tower kind of stuff. And it's like, dude, you've never had to, like, scrounge a day in your life for, for, for money, for anything like that. And a lot of those people that are working for free as interns and volunteering, I don't know many people that can volunteer for months on end and their early 20s or whatever that, you know, the people that I know, you're getting a, a sector of society that may not understand what it's really like to be broke. Everybody's version of broke is something different, you know, but I can tell you, like, I know what mine is. And I know what somebody else, like when, you, you know, first world problems, right? And then you go to somewhere else and it's like, they're trying just to make sure they can eat tonight, get some rice. So you see that group of people and the, these group of people are, are speaking for all these other group of people that they don't even know anything about. They haven't even taken the time to go there and meet. They go over there and they go, hey, why are you killing everybody? Like in the, in the movie, I'm kind of getting fired up here, but <laughs> in the movie, they were acting like when they were spying on them offloading the bluefin tuna, they acted like they were like smuggling drugs. 100%. And I was like, you got, this is so There's a lot of showmanship there. Like the police are following us. And yeah. like, who knows? Like I've been to Japan, like they, th- that, that's a country that loves fish, 100%. And oh, yeah. they are definitely a country that would need to use uh, regulation to curb and manage demand and manage their fisheries appropriately. But a- after like traveling there for a week and a half, their oceans are beautiful, like pristine. 
they like I was living in China and traveling to Japan and the way they manage litter and waste and that that have to be at the top of the world like leading the world for the way they manage their waste and uh, wastewater and things like that the water's pristine and it it seems like I'm not saying all their fisheries are vibrant but some of them are um, there is a really sad and tragic part about the the over the um, exaggerated demand on Pacific bluefin tuna like the that is where, you know, obviously an area where it looks like that they need to provide uh, a lot more hefty regulation. And this is the reality of, 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 of managing a fishery. Like, that, that, that's a government's job to do that. But um, that would be a tough pill and a bitter pill to put through the government when, you know, there's so much demand for it in, in your population. So it's not without problems, but um, jeepers, it's better than some of the other countries have been to, that's for sure. Oh, 100%. And then the other thing is, like, I do agree with them, with the Cusco, whatever, you know, the mafia and the unions. They run that area. They do. And it is about money, mm. um, which is why they have very unique fishing rules there as far as being in the union in order to the fishing union or co-op in order to even fish. And spearfishing is a very different thing too. Well, spearfishing is uh, illegal largely in Japan, which right. is bizarre. And you you ha- you you do so um, illegally when you do choose to spearfish in Japan. But there are quite a few Japanese spearers. Have you talked to any? Yes, uh, I have. And uh, there's a couple of areas there that are unbelievable. And I'll just leave it at that because um, I don't want to give away anybody's spots. But I'll say like there is a healthy population of fish. But I also agree with those uh, with the documentary of blue f- you know bluefin tuna. It needs to be um, managed. 100% agree with them on that. But I just, you know, it, it's where it, documentaries like this can have a powerful effect. You know, like if it was made in Japanese, and it was about the fishery and how under threat it is, and how the this inflated demand is creating this awful um, problem in that particular fishery in that particular part of the world, and um, and how that the the country need to be a bit more courageous in confronting it so that they preserve those fish stocks into the future. If you're down to sub-5% uh, virgin biomass, then something dramatic needs to change, I think. But I don't know. That's just my couch surfing claim in a different part of the world and in a different cultural context. So, um, but yeah. Um, there was a lot of language and hyperbole that I, I, I equate to um, propaganda. You know, we're at war with the oceans and um, there's a war on... Uh, there's a war on... What was it? There was some bullshit at the start. There's a, I can't even remember. And then an, another guy says, uh, Captain Paul Watson says, there's no such thing as a sustainable fishery. And that's when you start to realise, like, oh, I see what they're doing here. Like, there's no... there's no. Yeah, I, I got a comment on that real quick. And yeah. the only reason why I'm calling absolute bullshit on that is if that was true, then there would be no Polynesians. <laughs> there would be nobody on any any Pacific Islander. There'd be nobody on there because they wouldn't be able to sustain, you know, the reef that they're fishing, the local reefs that they're fishing. They just wouldn't exist. There'd be a lot of group of, a lot of Filipino villages that wouldn't be around. There'd be a lot of Asian little uh, countries that wouldn't be around if that wasn't true. And uh, yeah, you know, you know, Paul Watson, <laughs> he doesn't like Spiros. And uh, it's funny because, you know what, I, I guarantee you, like, he made his whole living off his agenda. And, that, and that's what it is for him. And part of me is like, okay, uh, yeah, I don't really care for him very much. 
You know, and I guess the part of it is you could do so much good. Those guys could do so much good. Exactly what you're talking about as far as, you know, making it in Japanese documentary. Mm -hmm. You get Japanese people to make a Japanese documentary and people will listen. Nobody wants to listen to a white dude talking to another country in their ivory tower talking down and they're just not going to listen, yeah. you know? Same with the, the Faroese um, situation. Uh, like the, the dolphins that they are doing there in Taiji, like... Um, it's very hard to speak into another person's culture about what they what they are doing or not doing. Um, one thing I wanted to get back to is the dispersion of responsibility. Like, like I said, like at the start, I liked it because he was like, "I'm I'm online. I'm signing all these e petitions, and I'm donating donating to my uh, Greenpeace or whatever it is, you know, like um, PETA or, or 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 any of these type of organisations." It's a dispersion of personal responsibility. What you're doing is you're 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 saying, well, you know what I'm doing about it. I'm going to sign an e-petition and I'm and I'm going to donate a hundred dollars to whatever. And then because of that, it means that I've kind of like paid for good karma. And what it, and and these businesses, these charitable businesses, are cashing in on people's guilt. It's like the I feel a sense of responsibility. So instead of actually being responsible and 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 making better choices and actually doing stuff, I'm going to pay money to people that will do that for me. It's like back in the day, like, you know, people used to pay the Roman Catholic Church money for their sins so that they could go out and they could do some sins. It's it's the same thing. It's just the modern day equivalent. It's like, I'm going to pay this fringe green group some money so that I can go out and just eat as much tuna on what on uh, my Subway sandwiches I want without having to worry about where that fish came from. I agree with you. I think paying paying for the guilt to go away without actually getting a lot done is is easier. It all comes down to lower friction. I think what's crazy to me is that a lot of change can happen if we just uh, banded together and use that same amount of money in our community to like pay lobbyists for our own agenda to kind of uh, and then have a really clear plan. Because I think a lot of us just kind of do our own thing and hope for the best and then get mad when things don't go our way. I think we just need to have maybe have some like leaders who are really in the community kind of start stepping up and kind of organizing and we kind of band together. And we, there's obviously a lot of like heated stuff right now, <laughs> just between us three. And I'm pretty sure probably pro propagates throughout the whole community. I think we can do a lot with our own dollars, with our own like actions versus just pay and pray that something good will happen, you know, with somebody else to do something for us. Yeah. I mean, I used to donate, you know, to Greenpeace and, and all that stuff when I was young. And, uh, you know, when I was 22 <laughs> and, uh, you know, and it was like, Hey, I really want to you know, help the rainforest. How can I do that? I can't get on a plane and fly to the rainforest and, and do that. Okay. I'm going to give money. These guys are going to do on my behalf. But then it's like, and I encourage people to look at what those people made, the CEOs of those companies or whatever, those nonprofits, these people are cashing in. So, you know, do they do good? I'm sure they do do good. But it's just important to remember that, that really, when you look at it from the top down, they are, it is about making money. And, and if there's no issue, then there's no money to be made. It's like they say the war on drugs, right? Like if, you know, the war on drugs in, in America, like it creates a lot of jobs, <laughs> creates a lot of jobs, right? And they say, oh, the war on drugs is bullshit. Just make all drugs legal. And then all just, you know, and then that's it, Right. But the bottom line is it is funded by people are making a lot of money off these issues. So you create an issue, you can fabricate your own issue, be the spearhead of the one that does it. And then people re genuinely 
most people love the environment and care about it. And yep. so they're going to give you money to fight on their behalf. I think, you know, there's an old thing uh, saying my friend would say, like, I think it was Gandhi that said this, if you want to in, or maybe it was um, Yogananda, if you want to in world, if you want to start world peace, then everyone, like you could do world peace right now. The secret would be everybody take care of yourself. Yep. Everybody take care of your own self. And then we'll have world peace. Because you can control, the only thing you can control is your own household, which, you know, that mainly yourself, but you can only do so much in your own household, but you can control your own household. But like what John said is if nobody is really aware of these issues and you, you can't, you know, you, you can't take your own belief system where everybody has the same belief system in the same house and bring it individually up and take care of your own self against people that are united. We are divided among fishermen we are divided among people in general. And I do think that the vast majority of us want to do good things for um, the environment. And uh, I think that if we had an avenue, and some people would say, well, that's PETA and that's uh, Greenpeace. But I think those organizations got so big and I think they got really watered down with their messages. And I respect everybody trying to do the right thing. And I'm not shitting on anybody for their own thing. And again, I'm just, this is just my opinion. But if everybody kind of took care of their local issues more and rallied up on their local issues, they could really do a lot of good. Because like you're saying, Shrek, it's really hard to tell people over in the Persian Gulf that they're doing things wrong when they're sleeping in a hut on the floor, just trying to get enough fish to be able to sell it so they can eat. Yeah, like, yeah. You know what I mean? I've done a fair bit of reading about this and I've watched the documentary and I know you guys have too because, you know, we're all in this space and we all love fish and fishing. And so Sea Spiracy was always going to come on all of our radar. I want to encourage people to go to any of our websites today. So castandspear.com, spearfactor.com or noobspear.com. And we'll all probably have a version of show notes up and it'll have some articles linked up, just stuff that we've all found valuable. There was a massive conversation on the Noob Spirit community that I wanted to um, just give a couple of shout-outs to. Like Ben Vitino sort of brought it to the attention of the community. He said, hey, Noob, has anyone else watched Seaspiracy? I watched it tonight. Certainly some eye-opening stuff. Reaffirms a lot of what made me want to start catching my own food in the first place. What do you think? And there, there was really good, robust conversation on there. Uh, a lot of stuff, uh, a lot of, just good, robust conversation. I think it's good. Like, obviously, this documentary pointed out a lot of different um, issues. If I've sounded like I'm overly angry about some of them, um, it's more just because of the overarching narrative of the documentary is one of propaganda, and it's and it's actually an anti-spearfishing message, and uh, and that's kind of what what gets me fired up, and probably why I take less of a devil's advocate position with it. Um, but some of the points, you know, like. You know, plastics in our oceans, like, of course, all of us are probably on the same page with that, you know, like um, overfishing and, and bad commercial fishing practices, of course, we're all against that, you know. Piracy and detaining people of their liberty and forcing them to fish, you know, like, who, who's clapping, going, yeah, you know, like, none of us are on board with that, like. Killing uh, whales, right? That's, a, that's another kind of an issue, right? When they're, they're killing the whales, there's a lot of, that. I like just a, bring that up though, because the killing the whale thing is kind of interesting because there's groups that have historically done that out of cultural things, right? right? Cultural reasons. And then there's commercial fishing of whales. Yep. And where it gets really tricky too, is you're talking about higher level of mammals. So now that like from, I've worked with them that, you know, like they can reason and think 
and it gets a little weird. And I just wanted to see what your guys' thoughts was on that portion of the film. Um, because they're not supposed to commercially whaling, or commercial whaling, but they have that, you know, the loophole for research. And I think everybody knows that it's bullshit, right? <laughs> they're shooting all this well. It's like, it's for research. Like, sure, bro. Um, and I think that's the issue that people have with it. Not necessarily, you know, the cinematography, right? The visions of whales, getting, nobody enjoys that. It's terrible. Just like deer hunting, right? Seeing an animal bleed out. Nobody's gonna, nobody's gonna enjoy that, right? I don't think anybody that hunts really enjoys that. Um, but no, it definitely that, creates a conversation. That's part of being connected to it. Like when you when you hunt terrestrial animals, like and 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 fish too. But I think to a lesser extent, just because of the way we um, prioritize and rank animals in our own minds, and and it's based on cultural context and the way we perceive the world around us, and this whole thing we call hunting, but. Like, I, I don't enjoy the kill moment, um, but I, I think it's part of it about being intentional towards your food and it's accepting the reality that something must die in order for me to carry on and feed my family. And we're just connected to the reality of it and we don't deny it. Whereas people that want to buy things off a shelf in a supermarket are quite happy to allow that reality to be someone else's problem. And uh, whereas we, we're just intentional about how we do it. And if you do care about what you kill, then you're not going to overkill everything. Um, not everyone's, some people's consciences are seared and they don't care what they kill, where they kill, or how much they kill, you know. But I, I you know, like I deal with those people in my professional job every day. Um, but I, I think, um, yeah, I think spearfishing makes you more intentional towards it because you become aware of it. If you practice any form of hunting and you're directly connected to that activity, then, uh, then it takes on a different reality and you just accept the cost of it. You accept the fact that, oh, I'm going to kill something today. Uh, that's that's your reality. And it's not that you enjoy it. It's just something that you accept and, and you don't take it for granted, I think. Um, but, yeah, like like looking at whales and dolphins get slaughtered, man, like because of where I grew up, you know, like New Zealand's very progressive in a lot of ways. I'm disconnected from the reality of having to do that for food. And whales and dolphins have never been part of my diet. So I have a moral problem with with me personally being involved with it. Um, but having said that, I didn't grow up in these cultures where they do do that. So I admit that I have a level of thinking that, you know, it's not a, you know, I don't, I don't understand it. I don't, I don't, I didn't live there. I didn't grow up in it. If I did, maybe I would have a different idea about it, but yeah, that's kind of my thoughts. I'm in the same camp. I think, uh, it's not my culture. So I feel like me speaking upon it, you know, I have my own personal emotional, um, you know, when I see it, I, I don't like to see it. I think they're pretty high on the animal hierarchy. And, you know, at some point in the 21st or in 2021, can we get those cultures, you know, good quality uh, meat shipped around the world? Yeah, but I don't think they're doing it for that reason. I think they're doing it because, you know, it's part of their tradition. And some traditions, you know, you know they, they're going to keep going for the community and some might go away over time with education. You know, it's like not always will the next generation in those groups be uh, wanting to do that, you know? And I think with the internet and being connected, like, you know, it doesn't take much to influence those newer generations on say like a YouTube or something to be like, you know, maybe that's not the same way we should do it. Like, I don't know. I think it's, you know, I don't want to speak on it because then it's being a bit hypocritical, right? It's, um, I think, teach their own. And me personally, I just don't like to see it. <laughs> I just, I like whales and dolphins. 
oldmanblue.com.au. The people at Old Man Blue absolutely froth on the sparing life. They intentionally make super hard wearing and super practical gear that will stand the test of time. Visit them at oldmanblue.com.au. They continue to develop new products, but if you want a lobster bag that will stand the test of time, visit oldmanblue.com.au. If you want a bridal insertion tool, visit oldmanblue.com.au. If you want a fish stringer, a shark clip, a lobster loop that will perform and last, visit oldmanblue.com.au. Yeah. Yeah, that's the same boat. Yeah, bro. No, that's it. Like, it's like I like whales and dolphins, so I don't want to kill them and I don't want to watch it. That's pretty good. It's so true. But 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 to sit in judgment on someone else and their activities like that, like I'm all about personal responsibility. Like you do you. You're responsible for you act in accordance with the with the with the moral framework that's on your life. And if it's out of line, you know, uh, that's definitely something we need to look at. But if an entire culture is doing something, then who am I to sit back? Well, I don't know. It comes down to cultural imperialism and some of these bigger arguments, doesn't it? Well, it's like, uh, you know, cows, right? Like we eat cows all the time, but I guess, you know, cows are wholly sacred animal in other countries. Mm. And so they might look at us as like, what are you doing? So it is hard, you know, you got to take care of your own backyard first, right? Um, But I think, again, like where the issue is, is that there's laws that were passed saying if you're going to, you know, kill an animal, it's got to be for this. And then apparently they're saying they're killing it for this, but it's sold in stores. And I think that's the issue for those people. There was an international treaty that they saw that the world sort of signed onto and said, we will no longer kill uh, whales and dolphins, except for the purposes of science and blah, blah, blah. But Japan officially withdrew from that accord. So they, they no longer belong to it. I don't think the people in the Faroese Islands ever agreed to it or signed onto it. And, yeah, so they're good. Uh, well, there's pockets of indigenous people that, that that just do what they do, you know. Like there's an island just off here off Brisbane and they kill dugongs, which is uh, the sea cows, manatee yep. type things. And, uh, and that, But they take one or two a year and, and they believe that the oil that they get is medicinal properties and they also kill turtles um, and, you know, turtles are another sacred cow. Um, sorry, excuse the uh, reference to what you were just talking about. But, um, you know, and culturally to us, like eating a turtle, it's like, ah, oh, well, I don't, like, I don't like, I like turtles, you know, like, again, it's like, I like turtles, but who am I to say it's wrong to do? Because, I mean, some, I mean, turtles, I mean, According to one of the people in this, like six out of the seven species of of, of seagoing turtles are, are are on the verge of extinction. So yeah, I don't know. There's a there's a discussion to be had there, but it's culturally relevant, isn't it? Yeah, you said they were threatened, and that's where I kind of got off on that topic of like when as soon as he said that, I was like, it reminds me of when I was at the zoo and every animal at the zoo was threatened, right? Yeah. So yeah, and the other big thing is you know growing up, you see all these animals and they're all cute, right? Like rabbits are cute. To kill a rabbit for food, like my kids would probably disown me, you know. But in other places, and I've done it, like, you know, they're pretty my good last, to eat. My last housemate was Colombian and he is a vegetarian. His name is Rodolfo. Really, really uh, awesome bloke. Moved in, I thought, how the hell is this going to work? Like, I love meat and fish and and uh, and I've got this vegetarian guy uh, moving in. And he was a, just an absolute gentleman, like, and and I found out later when I, when we became good friends that his father had killed his pet rabbit when he was a child. The rabbit's name was Pepito, and uh, and and his father killed the rabbit in front of him and fed the family with it. And after that, he he decided and he did it. He became a vegetarian for the rest of his life. 
And, uh, you know, like, so, yeah, I, I, you know, I'm glad your kids aren't vegetarians yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a key word, yeah. They, you know, it's like what you were saying, I come home with the fish. And, uh, you know, they, my daughter and my daughters, my, my kids, I'll run out. They want to see what you got, you know. And uh, I brought on this not really nice mahi-mahi one day. And they're like, oh, it's a beautiful fish, Dad. You shouldn't have killed it. You shouldn't have killed it. Yeah. You know, but then you eat it and they're like, hey, okay, I don't want you to kill any more of those, Dad. I'm like, okay, I won't. I'll, you know, yeah, we'll see. But my wife would disagree with that. But, yeah. Yeah, they're beautiful. But, and 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 people connect that beauty with like, oh, I like it. Uh, I don't want to kill it. And but then, you know, like one of the first species you learn about if you've got um, mahi-mahi in your area is that super fast growing, fecund, you know, like not really commercially harvested in any way. And um, and they're a great species to, to spearfish because of that. And we like them. But they're beautiful and we kill them. And that's <laughs> reality of what we do. Like um, the documentary, Ali, he says, um, I finally knew what sustainability meant. It means that something can go on and on and continue forever regardless of how much suffering it causes. I then began to wonder if sustainability was the right goal. And I think that was probably a bit more honest. It was He, he was questioning just the, the reality of killing stuff to live. And I think that was really where he was going with the documentary the whole way. And that, that was kind of the conclusion of the documentary is like, don't eat fish. Incredibly simplistic and wonderful and just not a reality for most of the world's population. So, But at least he was honest there at the end. I, I thought he was battling with ideas of just basic morality, just like, like most 22-year-olds do when they're coming to terms with the world around them. But whether you're a vegan and you eat spinach all day and leaves, you're still, still killing stuff. That's the reality of being alive. Because, you know, there's, agriculture's got just as many issues as commercial fishing does, if not more. And they're probably better understood in a lot of ways because uh, terrestrial farming has been more studied than the oceans have. The oceans have really been open to more rigorous study for the last 50 years or so. Whereas farming's, you, know, you could argue, has been going a bit longer than that. But yeah, I just, um, yeah, it was an interesting thing. I didn't really connect it with his age like you did, Brett. I feel like um, there's always going to be some kind of moral guilt no matter what. Right. And that's what, like, we're all kind of just projecting, you know, so-and-so over there is worse than me. You know, even though if you're on this planet, you have some kind of effect on it. Right. And I think a lot of people just don't want to just admit that there is some kind of engagement, you know, something must, it's, you know, must go down. If something goes up, you know, if something dies, something else has to live. And I think a lot of people that kind of thought process isn't you're not able to comprehend it so it's like okay that, that group of people is worse let's like feel better by saying that they're they're worse off than me and i think that's the problem right now it's like it's just ideologies and like a dispersion of guilt and blame so i think we all just got to realize that you know we're all on this planet we need to figure out how to work together to keep ever like as many of the species and things uh, going in a positive trend in a better light, you know, and that's better education, better management, better a lot of everything. Like there's a lot of improvement. We should always be thinking about how can we all improve ourselves and then through improving ourselves, improve our communities and go up the chain. You know, there's a lot of room for improvement. I think we just got to kind of work together as a species. John, you say it like such a gentleman. You're making us look bad. <laughs> down there, down there no. Maha Brett, he's all Zen and stuff. He's just he's like a yogi, freediving yogi. I'm just, nah, I'm just looking nah, at the beautiful nah. winery of vineyards over here, and I'm just like, it's just beautiful. Everything's beautiful, but we all, we, we all matter. We all need to figure this out together. 
not hate each other and not. (laughs) I I think too, like what you're saying is, um, I I do, I also appreciated what he said at the end. And, uh, I have friends that I know are vegan and they're vegan for the sake of, they don't like killing animals. And for whatever reason, that's fine. That's your thing. Then you know what? God bless you. And that's okay. But for us spear fishermen now, it doesn't make us like Satan. <laughs> there are plenty of bad people out there. And women. We like just, fish too. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. Sorry. That's all good. It's all good. <laughs> sorry. I apologize. There's a lot of badass women well, out if, there. If the men have to be Satan, then they have to as well. So yeah. She devils, I guess. <laughs> but I, I mean, um, you know, there's, there's, so I, I get where everybody's coming from and everybody, like you said, has their own moral code and that's good. You should be an individual and have your own moral code. I think the problem that we get in today's society is always bastard. Like, because people think or do things differently than, than, than you, then they're wrong. Right. You know, you can apply this to anything. And I always kind of, and I strongly agree with it. I strongly think this, like every, there's an element of truth, you know, someone that could have a different political perspective than you do. And that political perspective could be because of their experiences. Everybody has their own experiences in life and it shapes their own opinion. That doesn't mean they're wrong. They could be very, very right for the things that they've experienced. Mm. Just like for us or, you know, for me, I have a different perspective because I have a different, um, you know, course through my life than some people. And I've had different things happen to me. So I have a different perspective that might be a little bit like this. The point is, though, I think everybody's trying to get to the same spot, like I said before, and because we all have different, you know, influences and things that happen in our life, we all were like, well, no, you're going to get this way. Otherwise, you're going to lose this or you're going to get this way because, you know, but the bottom line is if everybody we got it, like we got to be united. And there's a lot of people that make a lot of money off keeping us separated <laughs> so that, like you said, it's that principle, right? Divide and then they're going to just control you know, and I don't know who that ever that is. I don't know the powers that be, maybe someone, you know, whatever it is. The point is, if we all give a shit about the environment, we all do. We just have different ways of applying that, that, that care and love towards the environment. Some people don't understand how you could love something and then kill it. Mm. I totally get that. Totally get yeah. that. And then other people are like, yeah, I yeah, have no problem with that. You know, like we, like we do. But, uh, <laughs> So it's just very different. I, you know, the bottom line is having respect for everybody's opinions. And I think what happens is when you feel like your opinion and your side is not getting respected because you're kind of getting demonized, that's when yeah. your hackles come up, right? And that's when you stop listening. And then that's when you just go on like usually defensive mode, which is kind of in a way probably what's happening here a little bit. But yeah. like, <laughs> well, this from my point of view anyway. For sure. But I, I love the fact that they have an opinion. I love the fact that they were... They came up with it and he came up with it. And like you said, he started, he had a problem and he tried to have a solution and he buckled down and made a film and did something with it. You know what? That's awesome. Um, I don't necessarily agree with it, but that doesn't mean that he's wrong and I'm right. It's a good thought to end on, I think, Brett. Um, we've had a, a, a massive conversation today. So at Brett's at Spear Factor on Instagram. Is that right? At Spear Factor, one word? Spear Factor, yeah, Spear Factor, one word. Oh, and John is at Carsten Spear, also on Instagram, John. Yep, on all the platforms. It's uh, the Spear Factor, the underscore oh, wow. Spear Factor. Yeah, I don't even know my own shit. An article in there, sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think Dude, this was fun, guys. Yeah. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for putting this together, Shrek. You really are a legend, man. Really do appreciate your time.
Oh, good. Thanks, guys. Well, let's end on that note. Yeah, you do right, so guys. much for the community. Don't, Thanks, Shrek. Don't, don't be dicks was the message, I think. Just, <laughs> yeah. be, be polite. <laughs> All right, guys. I'll catch you later. Okay. Take care. See you, Bye. Bye, Shrek. Massive conversation today, guys. Really want to just thank John at Casting the Spear and Brett Whitman from Spear Factor for coming and joining me. Uh, I apologize if it was a little bit negative today. It's never my intent to do so. Um, however, this documentary stands really against a lot of the values that we hold dear as Spiros. And uh, I, I'm not sure if you share uh, my, my opinions, and, and that's fine if you don't. I would encourage you to take part in, a, in the broader conversation on the new Spiro community on Facebook. And uh, come and have your say. I'll, I'll have a, a new post up there when this uh, episode goes live, and I'd love to hear about what your thoughts were on it. Again, massive thanks to Brett, Spear Factor, and John at Cast and the Spear. Check out their podcast if you can. Uh, if you love the Noob Spear podcast, I'd love it if you left us a review. And if you just froth on it, you know, like more than 40 others do, become a patron listener at patreon.com forward slash noobspero. Um, every single dollar earned through Patreon is used to fund trips where I get to come out and go diving with listeners, interview legends, and uh, basically dive a different part of the world for myself. And uh, I, I really love it. Uh, thanks for listening. Next week, we're off to chat with the wet mammal, Sam Clothier. Boom. Adreno stock all the equipment noobers need for freediving and spearfishing. The Adreno spearfishing team will help and advise you about equipment, diving, trips, dive locations for spearos and aspiring spearos of all levels of experience. Visit them in store or chat to one of their friendly team members. They've got stores in Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane and Perth and there's a new one on the way. Also, don't forget to take advantage of the Noob Spiro discount code and save $20 on every purchase over $200. That's right, you can now use the code Noob Spiro in store. Yeah. Recently, I brought some new equipment online at today's show sponsor, Neptonics.com, and I was super impressed by the quality of the packaging and the before and after sales support. These guys don't muck around. They make awesome, tough, dependable equipment, and their service matches the quality of the equipment they sell. Visit neptonics.com, use the code NOOB10 to save 10% on anything and everything store-wide. If you're shopping in the USA and you spend more than $99, you get free shipping at neptonics.com.